Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts, a new Star Trek podcast from the Heroes Podcast Network. I am one of your three regular hosts, Derek. I have my other two awesome co-hosts, uh, Jeremy and Greg, and we're going to go around and introduce ourselves. Jeremy, why don't you go ahead and kick us off? Tell us a little bit about you and why you are into Star Trek. Uh, my why is a little boring. My dad was into it long before I ever had the ability to make my nerdy decisions, so... Uh, it just became one of those family shows that um, Next Generation, I was, you know, watching it when I was five years old and stuff like that. It was just kind of our, like, you know, sit down with dinner in front of the TV and this is what we watch. I think that's pretty common. Yeah. You know, um, it's not far from, from my story either, um, but uh, we'll, we'll get to me. Uh, Greg, how about you? Well, it's, it's kind of funny, but the, the first movie I remember ever seeing as a kid we all had that one movie, whatever it might have been. Mine was Star Trek Four, the, the the Voyage Home. So <laughs> the one with the whales. The one with the whales. And I remember being like, I distinctly remember being like four or five years old for days, just asking everybody, "What was that movie with the whales?" And you know, I had three <laughs> older brothers. They're like, "That was Star Trek Four, Greg." I'm like, "All right, well, where can I get more of this Star Trek?" And you know, I'm saying it like a four year old, so I'm sure I was, you know, falling down at the same time. Uh, but that's. Just, <laughs> But one of my brothers is really, really into it as well. So that's, um, and he's like 12 years older than me. So, you know, there's this 18 year old brother tutoring his four or five year old brother, younger brother in the ways of Star Trek. And it all started with Star Trek four. And, uh, it just kind of got me involved that way. I think that's a good place to start. Everybody seems to really like that movie, ex- except for a few who I just don't think have a, a sense of humor about Trek, but, uh. <laughs> But yeah, for me, I was six months old, almost to the day when The Next Generation premiered. So my dad was a huge Trekkie. He was 16 years old when the original series began in 1966. And so I have been watching Star Trek my entire life. And I don't remember what my first Trek episode was or, or anything like that. I, I just remember there always being Trek, whether it was the original series or Next Gen or the movies, of course. Um, so for me, it's just one of those things that's been a part of my life for the entire time. I, I don't know life without Star Trek. Yeah, it's one of those things for me. I don't know if I remember seeing like Farpoint when it originally aired, because I've probably seen it a million times and it just reinforces that memory, but that's probably one of my earliest memories. Yeah, for some reason, I know it's a later season, but for some reason the episode Relics, where Scotty comes on, um, is like super ingrained I don't know why, but that, that episode just really sticks out. Like, I actually remember where I was sitting with my dad to watch that one for some reason. Yeah, that, that one sticks out. So, uh, Greg, what is then kind of your Star Trek if, if you have a, a type? Is there an era or a series that you gravitate towards? Kind of, kind of like the comment you made that I grew up with Next Generation, and while I, I try to enjoy all the series one way or the other, Next Generation is that one that when people ask me, what was your favorite episode or your favorite series, your favorite story, I will always gravitate towards Next Generation. And, you know, I love Deep Space Nine. I love the original series. You know, I always have that, I'm like a lot of people, I have that love-hate relationship with Voyager and Enterprise because there's amazing episodes and then there's just weak stories. But I was joking with a friend yesterday or a couple days ago when Discovery started and they were all worried about it. I'm like, let's admit, the first two seasons of Next Generation, when you look back on it, they were kind of rough. It, yeah. <laughs> and I, that, I still distinctly remember those two seasons because I grew up with them. And back then, as a kid, I didn't really think about it. But now I'm older. I'm like, man, there were some, there were some rough episodes. But TV has that. You're going to have your strong points. But it's always going to be Next Generation for me. 
Yeah, whenever I'm flipping around and I see those uh, TNG uh, repeats on like BBC, if as soon as I see that thin that thin colored line on the uniforms, I'm like, oh, <laughs> bad bad next generation. Early, I keep moving. Early next gen, yep. <laughs> or the, uh, the the man skirts that some of the male officers were wearing. Yeah. Ah, the scants. the scants. Yes, that's what it was. The scants. Troy's <laughs> uh, cheerleader outfit that she had. <laughs> the season one, season two uniform in the in the background. Yep. Mm-hmm. There's, a, I think it's the first episode. There, there's a guy walking around in one in engineering, if it, I remember right. It's almost like they uh, when they came out with um, uh, Star Trek Generations, and it's like they have half the uniforms with Deep Space Nine and half the uniforms with Next Generation, and. It's almost like we don't know exactly what uniform we're going to use yet, so just stand in the background. And just did that bother anybody else? Because it really bothered me. But nah, it it always it didn't bother me in the sense that it confused me because I always was like, all right, Star Trek's kind of military, so they're kind of you know everybody's going to be doing one thing or the other. Now it would have been cool if there would have been like some comedy person on the cast that accidentally slipped in like a monster maroon in the background just to see if anybody would catch it in generations. Um, <laughs> who knows? Maybe there was, and it just got cut. I suppose because like you know, there's that scene in I guess it's astrometrics for for lack of a better term, where with, with Data and Picard in generations, and Picard's wearing the TV show uniform and Data's wearing the DS9 uniform, <laughs> and I don't know. It just always threw me off. Maybe that's too nitpicky. Uh, we're, we're Trek fans. Nitpicky is, you know, one of the one of the things in our fandom. Of course, because Star Trek's always kind of base itself. And I can't remember who said it. I want to go digging through old podcasts I've listened to. Somebody always mentioned that you know Star Trek was always in the realm of science fiction versus science fantasy. It's like a lot of stuff they did was based on some kind of, you know, functional reality at least. Then it became TV, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Jeremy, how about you? Do you have a, a particular era of track? Uh, I mean, I'm pretty much in the same place as Greg. My my sweet spot is between about season three of Next Generation and the end of DS9. Because, I mean, given that that's like one almost uninterrupted continuity with shared characters and, and conflicts and stuff, that's kind of like my my long arc that, that I followed from beginning to end. It was only until, like, a few years ago that I even sat down and watched Voyager because I just was so precious that like, this is my Star Trek. Fair enough. Um, mine's a little more complicated, I guess. Uh, for me, the, my first thought whenever I think of Star Trek is actually the, the older movies, not the show, but the movies, uh, kind of, you know, two, three, four, um, and six, cause they're, you know, <laughs> five. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, I actually um, – I did not watch Deep Space Nine until college when Netflix was already a thing and I could get the DVDs mm. because uh, it was always really expensive to buy it uh, yeah. where like TNG got the box set and I accident I didn't know it at the time, but I accidentally bought a bootleg of Voyager. Um, and uh, Voyager was the first one that I watched as it aired at an age where I felt like I really understood what was happening from the beginning. So Voyager always kind of has a special place for me, but, uh, you know, I, I'm a little sad I took so long to watch Deep Space Nine. Well, and I know Deep Space Nine, even just from talking to a lot of my friends and what Jeremy was mentioning, that extended continuity with the characters and the story arcs, is a lot of my even friends from college, they got lost in Deep Space Nine at like the season four, five, six, seven, when they started the whole Dominion War thing. And, and I, they were all like, well, that's so, you know, not Trek. And I'm like, well, you're right. But if you, you watch the original series and even Next Generation, they always talk about all the wars that happen. You just never see them. It's like war was always a thing in the Federation. It's just this is the first time you actually get to see it. And it was cool because TV didn't really have an intergalactic war TV show between <laughs> Deep Space Nine and, I mean, of course, the reimagined Battlestar Galactica. But not on that kind of scale where you're watching, you know, episodes where 600 Federation ships are fighting 1,200 Dominion. And all of us as fans, like, we've never seen Star Trek like this before. Yeah, it's almost uh, a little sad at times because, you know, all those ships were CGI. So we're, we're never going to see a Blu-ray of those. And I just, I want one. I think it would just be amazing. No, I agree. So I guess with that, have you guys seen everything that's canon, every episode and every movie? I have not. 
Um, uh, there are a couple of the original series movies I haven't seen and probably most of the episodes. That was just kind of a blind spot for me. Um, for myself, I've caught all the series except for the last season of Enterprise, but I'm up to speed in all the movies and I'm still uh, kind of binge watching Enterprise in the background at my hotel. So it's, 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 it's always interesting jumping from show to show to show like I've been doing lately. Yeah, that's that's for sure. They they do have some tonal differences. Uh, I have actually seen every single movie and episode except for the finale of the animated series, and <laughs> the reason is uh, because Discovery had not been announced at the time. I always and this is kind of silly. I always wanted there to be some episode that I hadn't seen yet. <laughs> Uh, so I'll probably get around to, uh, doing a rewatch of the animated series cause I picked up the Blu-ray and I will watch the finale now, but, but yeah, so Greg, since you're doing your enterprise watch, um, if you feel like just not watching these are the voyages, which is the finale, that's okay. Cause that episode is not good. <laughs> I have been advised that by a few of my other friends and colleagues at work as well that, they almost, one of my friends described it as it almost felt like a completely different writing and production crew, which always wanted to make me to go back and like, look, I'm like, was that going around when the writer strike happened and they had to bring in a bunch of just secondary people just to make an episode occur? I'm not sure. I mean, cause so, you know, the show had been canceled, of course. And so they, um, they knew that season four was the last, but the episode before the finale, Terra Prime with Peter Weller is really, really good. Um, and then they had this one more episode and, uh, you know, when you get there, we'll, we can talk about it more, but, uh, it was kind of a slap in the face, I think, to the, to the actual show. I gotcha. I'd be interested to listen to like the, uh, the commentary on that. If there's a DVD to see if they have any justification for like, we just had to get out of here. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good point. I I should check that out. I I do have the discs, so I should see if there's anything on there. Um, I'm a little obsessed, so I, I do. I now have all of them, all of the shows on either DVD or Blu-ray, depending on the availability. Well, that's a that's a healthy obsession because, and that's and that's something CBS said about Discovery is, you know, as many people complain about the all access, it lets them track how many people are buying it just to watch Star Trek. So you know they're always watching how many people buy the DVDs and the Blu-rays to gauge the overall interest of Star Trek. Yeah. That was absolutely true with the TNG Blu-ray release. They uh, basically said that um, in the first few seasons, they did movie premieres of whatever big two-parter they were going to do. And uh, I went to the first two or three, whatever it was, and then they stopped doing it because nobody was going. Um, You know, so they do pay attention. But uh, speaking of Discovery, that's why we're kind of kicking things off here. Uh, We have a new show, which is kind of cool. How do you guys feel about that? I mean, I'm I'm always happy to uh, see Star Trek on TV, even though it was only one episode. The rest is online, but you know, kind of kind of in this world that we live in, that is what TV is, so it counts. Yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed what they're doing with it. Um, I even signed up for the free week of access, and I you know I'm going to keep it so I can see the rest of the episodes because it at least entertained me enough and grabbed me enough that I wanted to know more of. I want to know what's, what more is going on with the storyline because it's an intro to a series unlike any we've ever really had. And yeah. they that's kind of a risk to take with with someone like Star Trek, which always kind of uh, preaches the, the peaceful exploration and these are the voyages. And, you know, Discovery opens up and, you know, here are the Klingons. And, oh, by the way, they're back. And, by the way, they're horrifying aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a different tone uh, of a show. Uh, as just a fair warning to anybody who uh, is listening to our first episode here, if you have not seen the two-part premiere, the uh, the Vulcan Hello and uh, what is it, the Battle at the Binary Stars, um, as well as the After Trek episode that paired with it, there will probably be some spoilers in here from this point forward. So um, go check those out and then come back. Um so let's talk a bit about about Discovery. Uh, now that the, the show is out there, how do you guys feel about 
the changes that uh, that they have made or the direction that they're taking the show. Uh, for example, the Klingons are a big hot button. Does the fact that they look different bother you? I think that kind of comes down for me to what how they explain it. Like, if that's going to be something that is resolved, how they eventually come to look like Worf. Because, I mean, when the DS9 episode that uh, they time travel back to the Trouble with Tribbles from the original series, they confront Worf about why they don't have the head ridges or look weird. And he just says, that's a dark time in Klingon history. We don't talk about that. So I, they they could potentially have some, like biological event that occurs within, within the Klingon people that makes them look like Worf, but... Yeah, I agree with him. That Trials and Tribulations episode, they, all three of them literally stop and look at Worf and like, where are the Klingons? Them? And they all just start staring at Worf, like, what happened? Well, not to spoil anything for you, Greg, uh, but in Season 4 of Enterprise, they actually uh, retcon the whole thing. Alright, let me write let me write that down so I can check it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brent Spiner actually uh, guest stars. It's a two or three part arc. Uh, I'm trying to remember. And uh, James Avery, who played Uncle Phil in the Fresh Prince of Bel Air and the voice of Shredder in the Terminator and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon, actually plays a Klingon. <laughs> um, but yeah, they retcon the whole thing um, and uh, they explain that. So if they're going to have to explain it another time, that's going to be a little weird. I don't know. I think for me, it's more of a... I know I know a lot of people keep talking about how Klingons have changed over the years. And yeah, TOS, the motion picture, uh, the beginning of TNG, and then later with TNG and DS9, yeah, they've changed. Uh, but usually it was because they got yeah. more money each time right. and could have you know better effects. That's not the reason here. Um, now, they, they were trying to reassure people and say that you know, this is just one of the 24 houses, and they will explain why they look different. But the houses that they do show in the episode, because they show like seven of them um, in the holograms, they all look the same, right? Yeah, they did. They all looked the same. They had Some of them had like that facial piece or that facial armor on. But no, and it goes, like you just said, though, it's not about the money. Because Discovery is what, like eight or nine million dollars an episode, I think, is what they were saying online. Which, if you look at yeah. Game of Thrones, yeah. like seasons one through four were all hovering around that $10 million mark. So, you know, CBS Paramount was obviously interested in throwing money at this show. So, and again, I mean, they even, they, the Klingons in Into Darkness look different. And that's, I mean, no, that's the Kelvin timeline. They're still Klingons. I mean, they just, <laughs> the Klingons and Romulans both look different. So it's like you have, like, what, different, five different variations of Klingons we've seen on screen right now. Um, you know, original series, we can all, we just joked about it. We can all chalk it up to, well, they only had so much money back in the original series days to do what they could with makeup. Yeah, and that, that's kind of how I always explain it to myself. It was, you know, if they had had the money in 1966 and the technology, the Klingons would have looked more alien. Um, and I will say that I prefer the Discovery design to the Kelvin timeline design, uh, just on a personal level. I agree with you on that. Do you, do you think that so maybe this is the question really is why does this show take place in the in the prime timeline at all? Yeah, that's really the question. Like, what is to be gained by cutting cutting all that out? Well, and it's a good point because like there's enough of the stuff they have of like Klingon lore and history that they have in Discovery. You know, when when they're you know bidding goodbye to their fallen comrades and and they do the the shout to you know let. Stovokonoro warriors coming when they were all doing when before they did it I was watching the screen I'm like are you going to do the Klingon howl or not and then they did and when they <laughs> did it that, that clicked in my brain I'm like alright so the people writing this show are, are fans of Star Trek they know about that so then like you both just said there's gotta be more to them to be in the prime timeline than we know just right now yeah I mean the writers and people involved are definitely experienced with Trek. Uh, one of the lead writers in the show is Kirsten Beyer, who uh, has written over 10 Voyager novels. Uh, I'm actually reading through hers right now. I'm like in the fourth or fifth one. They're actually really awesome. Um, and you've got, uh, you know, Brian Fuller, of course, created the show and is uh, executive producing and wrote uh, most of the first episode. He, of course, uh, wrote on Star Trek. Um, there's other other people involved, too. So that they know the material, they know canon, and it just seems like a weird choice that if you're going to make it look different, 
if you're going to make it, uh, up, you know, tonally different, why not just keep it in, in this new Kelvin timeline that the mass audience knows and let's just leave the prime timeline behind? Yeah, if, I mean, if their big goal was to make it look more alien and make it look more weird, I mean, that's certainly something they could have done in a direction that would have made it look like a more detailed version of the Klingons we know, especially given that they have later on the actual clone of Kalos that he's, you know, name checking in these first two episodes. And he looks like he's got, he's got hair. He's got, he looks like Worf. So it's, it's, it's weird to think that like 150, 170, whatever years later, they're going to clone one of these guys and he's going to look like that. Uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> I mean, they you're right, they reclone yeah. Kalos and, and they bring him back and they written, you know, in, in Next Gen. So, yeah, I never... Yeah, the whole Prime Timeline. Now I, now I got a whole bunch more stuff to think about. You know, like I said, they got part of the culture right and the lore right and the history right. It's just the look is so vastly different and you can tell they spent a lot of effort to get, like, the real prosthetics because that's one thing that stood out to me on the show is it looked like the actors behind the makeup and the and the costumes... They were giving it their all, but you could even tell that some, you know, like parts of the face wouldn't move when they would talk. And it's just because yeah. it's the so much latex and so much makeup and so much cover, but they were trying and they, they at least got the feel of the Klingons mostly right to me. Yeah. But, but then again, if you look at the original series Klingons and you compare them to, you know, war season six on DS nine, when the Klingons are at war with the Federation, I mean, they're. Even culturally, they feel like two different races. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's pretty accurate, too. So, of course, you know, the Klingons are, are a big deal, but uh, that's, you know, only half the show, really. Uh, how did you guys feel about our new lead character, uh, Michael Burnham? Uh, good. I mean, it's it kind of remains to be seen where she goes. Um, the The human raised on Vulcan aspect of it is, is an interesting twist because it's kind of like uh, Spock's origin, but, you know, genetically different. Yeah. And, you know, like one of the things I'm really interested in, because this is the nerd in me, the, the human raised by Vulcans, if she was raised on Vulcan in the high gravity environment since she was a kid, and you kind of get to see that a little bit in the premiere episode, like, is she stronger than the average human because of all that high gravity? Like they talk about that's why Vulcans are stronger. So there's so much they could do with that that we only got to see parts of it in two episodes. Um, physically, she's got a great presence on the screen, I think. Like, when when she's on the set, she's obviously... She's very interested in her character and wants to be there. It doesn't feel like she's trying to phone it in at all. I mean, that was true when she was on Walking Dead, too. She kind of stole the scenes that she was in because she's very, very good. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. In fact, I think I can say that across the board, the acting was really strong. Um, I don't I don't think anybody really phoned it in. But I, I, I kind of feel like it belittles her character a little bit to do the fan service of she's Spock's adoptive sister. Yeah, that was a little... Well, because then it throws that other continuity error in there. I'm like, how if she's the adopted sister, then how is... You know, how has this never come up in anything else in the prime timeline? Well, I'm okay with that because we don't find out till Star Trek V that he even has a, a brother, a half-brother. True. Cybok, you're right. Yeah, you know, so I'm okay with that. It's more of just, you know, at this point, Spock is already the first officer, or not the first officer, but the science officer on Enterprise under Pike. Um, you know, and so they're similar in age, maybe, but um, just do we always have to connect it back to, you know, some combination of Kirk, Spock, and Bones for it to be a Star Trek show. <laughs> I mean, we also have um, the Ambassador, who was in Next Generation. And so that's that's already a connection to Paul. Is his name, I believe? Yes. I'm not sure who you're talking about. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, the, the one who raised him is the Ambassador, who later in Next Generation had um, the disease where he couldn't control his emotions. Oh, uh, Sarek. Sarek, his father, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's oh yeah, that's his dad. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, Sarek's been around. I mean, he was in uh, Journey to Babel was his first appearance, and of, and of course he was in TNG later, and, that, and that's fine. But at this point, um, you know, do we still need those connections? I mean, TNG did it a little bit here and there, 
uh, to kind of keep the old fan base happy, do we still need that? Well, and like, yeah, because what if we're in like episode six of Discovery or whatever, and and just in the background they're like, oh, this is, and by the way, this is Ensign, you know, Louis Picard, the great great grandfather of Jean Luc. I'm like, well, I'm, like, I'm like, did we really need this? I'm like, we don't, because I agree with you guys, we don't need to connect everything. To, it would be the equivalent of almost watching, you know, the Star Wars prequels, and there's eight year old Han Solo on, you know, Theed running around just to have him there. And I don't want Discovery to do that either. I agree with you. True, but if we don't have any connections and the only connection is that it's set in the Federation, I don't know. It might as well be the Orville in that it's just like, it's just a space show that also happens to have similar themes. It's it's good to have those touchstones to where you go, oh, this is going to be in the thing. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Enterprise doesn't really have any connections to the other shows other than the finale, which I don't want to talk about. But... <laughs> um, you know, it, it doesn't have any, you know, there's no uh, great-grandfather of, of Kirk or anything like that um, in in Enterprise. And uh, even Voyager doesn't do it much. There's a couple of things in later seasons where you see, you know, uh, Captain LaForge in an alternate timeline. Uh, and I guess Barkley. But those are, those are ti- tiny connections after the show had its footing. This is your main character. Your lead character is Spock's adoptive sister. No, that's that's a good point. And if you think about it, like I always liked early on the first, you know, three or four seasons of DS9 when the major connection was, aside from, you know, Chief O'Brien, that connection between uh, Cisco and Picard because of the Battle of Wolf 359. And when they do the transition from Next Generation to DS9 and they don't like each other. And I was like, that's that was kind of neat because that's risky. I'm like, you have Captain Picard who Next Generation was in its prime when they entered DS9. And then you have the new the new commanding officer of DS9, Cisco, just being like, "Yeah, I don't like you because what you did <laughs> at Wolf Three Five Nine. Yeah, I'm like that was <laughs> that was a pretty good risk, and it worked. It worked out. Yeah, um, but Avery Brooks can also is also an amazing actor and a great captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Um, so okay, so Burnham's pretty decent. Um, I, I think she, I, I think Martin Green is is a great actor, so I'm excited to see more of her. Um, how do you guys feel about kind of the main climax where she essentially commits mutiny and attacks Captain Giorgio? That was completely unexpected to me. In a good way. And I love Michelle Yeoh. I mean, the actress for the captain, she's like, I, I was near weeping at the end because I was like, are you kidding me? I love her. The actress, the character, she's amazing. But the, uh, I'll give, um, you know, uh, Burnham credit. Cause when she, when she kind of did that action, that was completely unexpected to me. I had no idea. Yeah, that was definitely surprising to see a character that's supposed to be our hero take that hard of a turn, um, which was it, it was also good to see uh, someone who's not just, you know, a total rule follower like we've had in, in most of the other. Like there's there's the, the occasional renegade to go against a corrupt admiral, but not straight up mutiny. But then again, they also called the show Discovery and they showed the ship Discovery in trailers. So it, they kind of... Uh, you know, telegram the the fact that this wasn't going to be her ship. Well, so that's that's a really good point. Um, and to to kind of top that off, like, so I love Michelle Yao. I thought she she was amazing in this. Uh, Captain Giorgio at the moment, two episodes in, is my favorite character, and they've already killed her off. Um, and so that that was pretty disappointing. And while I a lot of people had guessed that they were going to kill her off. Um, we didn't know it for a fact until the opening title sequence when they called her a special guest star. Right. <laughs> and I was like, no, don't do that. That's totally the Game of Thrones thing they're doing is with, you know, special guests, so-and-so. You're like, well, okay, that person's in here for one episode. I mean, her, her death was pretty awesome the way they did it. Uh but her, the character and the actress, the actress is so phenomenal from all her past shows and her past movies. You know she's got the chops to do this. Oh, yeah. She could have Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, those Klingons. That's right. They had her whole back. But maybe that's part of my problem, though, is that, and this is, this is no offense to Jason Isaacs. I think he's awesome, and I'm excited to see him as a part of Star Trek. But I was really excited 
to have Michelle as our captain, you know, as a possibility of her being a, a regular character, if not, you know, the captain, but one of two captains. Uh, cause there were some talks about maybe it just being a two ship show, but, uh, you know, yeah, that would be, that'd be big. Right. Like that would have been pretty cool. Um, but instead, you know, we, we had an opportunity here to do something different. She's first off, she's Chinese, which, uh, there hasn't really been a prominent Chinese character, um, on a Star Trek crew. And, uh, she was able to, you know, they, they were cool with her keeping her accent, which I thought was a really big deal. Uh, because, you know, Chekhov is really the only other one who's ever had an accent. Um, and then her first officer is, is a, a black woman. And so I was really excited to have this new dynamic and immediately they're replacing it with, you know, another white British guy. And again, it's no offense to Isaacs, but I was excited for the change. Well, and that's what surprised me because there was there was so many people online, and I know the internet's one of those places. It's either great or just awful. So <laughs> much of the commentary of oh, why is Star Trek Discovery doing all this social issue stuff and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, have you guys ever seen Star Trek? I mean, yeah. they've been doing that since the original series, and the, the first interracial kiss on TV was Star Trek: The Original Series, and so that's why I was like, kind of thinking like you, Derek. I'm like. Why is this so surprising to some people? It's a vocal minority, I know, because the bulk of Star Trek fans love it for what it is. But I'm like, how can you people? How can somebody be so upset when they haven't seen it yet? And like uh, Jeremy said earlier, I mean, we've seen you know Burnham's actor on Walking Dead; she's great, and we all know Michelle Yao's great. So, what what's the problem here? Yeah, I've I've never understood that. I, I have a hard time understanding how someone could be a Star Trek fan, a Trekkie, a Trekker, and not be a accepting person of people from different races, genders, sexes, backgrounds, all that kind of stuff. Um, so when people were mad that, you know, Kate Mulgrew was going to be the captain of Voyager and, and all of that, it just confused me, um, which is why this does too. And so uh, I was really excited for, for Michelle. But um, how do you guys feel about the fact that really the, the premiere is just almost a totally different show uh, and that they're going to be switching gears pretty significantly moving forward. Well, that was something that they said in After Trek was um, one of the writers even said episode three is really the pilot. So this is like a pre-pilot pilot in a season that may not get picked up for a second and only has 15 episodes. It, it just kind of feels like a waste of time when they're really just building the intro of a couple characters that we're not even going to see through to the end of the show or that are going to be the only ones we see through to the end of the season. No, that, that's yeah. I never thought about it like that. Cause you're right. Cause we don't know if there's going to be a season two or anything more. It, they almost could have, it's like so much real estate is just getting kind of tossed for exposition when they could have made that one episode really. Or they could have, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, they could have almost done the, uh, the reimagined Battlestar look open up with a four part miniseries gauge the like check the interest level and again you know Battlestar wasn't going to be a TV show it started off with a miniseries and all the fans were like wait we want a TV show this was awesome and they made it a TV show you know what like a year and a half later after the miniseries or something um yeah well that's that was my big concern from just a pure marketing standpoint is if you're going to air one episode on live TV and have that be your sales proposition for getting people to pay money to watch the rest of the season, it should be an episode that represents what people are going to be buying. And half the cast isn't going to be carried over, and it's not even the same ship. So it's like, what was the thinking there? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and to top it off, you know, because the premiere is such a two-parter, the way the first part ends is just so abruptly that I actually thought something was wrong with my TV and it had cut off like the last scene. Um, <laughs> yep. And then to my surprise, episode two ends almost as abruptly. So, <laughs> Right. Exactly. Um, but it's a good point, right? Because this is on CBS all access in, uh, in the United States um, and Netflix in, in most of the world. Um, so you have to pay for that. For us, it's five ninety nine a month uh, or you know, nine ninety nine if you don't want commercials, and it's for one show. So, are you guys? Uh, I think you both mentioned that you are paying for CBS All Access. I'm doing the free trial. I 
I, I feel like I'm being tortured by CBS to have to watch those young Sheldon commercials. <laughs> really trying to decide whether or not it's worth an extra four bucks a month to not have to see those. Um, but yeah, I, I took the dive and I went to the nine ninety nine one. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, and Derek, you and I were, were talking about this is, you know, some of the other hobbies I do, I, you know, when I'm willing to spend, you know, $150 on like a Stormtrooper helmet, I'm like, well, okay, I can spend $10 a month for Star Trek, which was my first love. And so I, the main reason I want to do that to give them my money is because I hope that, that, and the two of you kind of alluded to this, I hope that they'll see the fans are interested and they want to know more about Star Trek and see more Star Trek and, you know, maybe even help continue the movie franchise. I know people have their opinions on it one way or the other, but I'm always, ha- I'm always a happier person when I have more opportunities to watch Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally with you there. I um, I took advantage of a little promotion. CBS and ThinkGeek partnered uh, to make a uh, Shinzao pin of, of the Shinzao, and it came with uh, $25 of CBS All Access credit. So nice. I justified it that way because it's a really nice pin, and uh, it was it was basically 30 bucks uh, with the pin and the credit. Okay, so uh, I, I think I'm going to upgrade to the commercial-free version just because... Um, it seems a little too cinematic for commercials, just personally. So, so I think I'll, I'll upgrade it. Um, but my, my justification is pretty simple. Uh, so I, I do another podcast on Network Screen Heroes, and we review a lot of movies. I see, I, I, I'm on pace to see 25 movies in theaters in 2017. So that's you know a little more than two a month at ten or fifteen dollars a ticket, depending on the format, for two hours of content at a time. Well, this is 10 bucks for four hours of content because you're going to get, you know, four episodes in a given month. Um, so I'm fine with it. I'm, I'm good with that. The big question is going to be, what, what do we do with these subscriptions in the downtime? Because there's going to be two months of no trek in November and December, and then it comes back in January. So do you think that CBS will just pull the plug if people just drop off and only keep it for Trek? Or do we have to feel obligated to just keep it all the time now? Ugh, I mean, I'm not going to be... I'll probably cancel mine for a couple months in the interim because I, I searched through pretty deep to see what they had to offer and it was not nothing much. They had a couple Star Trek uh, TOS movies in the mix, but not much else. Yeah, I'm with Jeremy because I even canceled my, my HBO account when Game of Thrones isn't on. And it's not because I don't like the other Game of Thrones content. There's some fine shows and some fine movies, but, you know, I have all the Star Trek series on, on a disc or digital variety of some kind. So there's yeah. just not enough to keep me on CBS All Access right now without Star Trek. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm actually the same way. So I, uh, I get HBO for Game of Thrones. I get stars for Ash vs. Evil Dead. Um, and I cancel those services when those shows are not on. Uh, cause that's basically all I watch on those channels. This is no different. You know, I keep Netflix all the time cause there's a ton of stuff that I watch on Netflix. So, um, do you think that depending on these viewers, these viewings or anything like that, do you think there's any chance that they'll just move it to Netflix everywhere? I don't know. They probably have contracts in place that, that say they have to stick with CBS all access through the end of the first season. That would be a hard right turn and a, probably look pretty bad for cbs if the numbers are good enough on on netflix worldwide i'm sure it'll come to netflix after this the season run like all the cw stuff does and and then if the numbers are good enough there then maybe it'll just become a netflix show yeah i think that's pretty reasonable um there have been talks that even if they if if we get a season two which it sounds like they've more or less greenlit a season two uh, they don't think it'll be ready until at the earliest, uh, early 2019. Yeah, that's that's a little surprising. I hope not. Because they're basically saying it takes almost three months per episode to to film, uh, which seems kind of intense given like, okay, so we have 15 episodes. I mean, that's, that's a long time. That doesn't quite sound right. <laughs> yeah, unless they're somehow filming multiple episodes at once, which is possible. Um but yeah, that's a long production time for, you know, a, I, I don't know what it is without commercials, a 48-minute TV show. Yeah, absolutely. That kind of brings me to one of my 
the the things that rubs me the wrong way about Discovery is that they are trying to make it a uh, prestige cable television, whereas all the other Trek, except for maybe Enterprise to some extent, was a fairly modest network budget show, and that was kind of the charm of it was that it wasn't overproduced and it was just kind of an encapsulated thing that was episode to episode. The fact that they're trying to make everything look like a lens flary Abrams movie is like, okay, does everything have to be this, this elevated? Yeah. Cause if you look at the original series, I mean, it almost looked like they were scrapping by paycheck to paycheck for some of those episodes just to, just to get them made. Yeah. And like you said, that was part of the charm. You know, we were, it's because the stories were great, the characters were great, the interaction was great. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right about the original series. There's a reason why every starship looked like the Enterprise, you know, because they only had one model. <laughs> it's just I always would love they would throw in there every so often. Oh, we've we've got 300 Constitution type class ships. I'm like, uh huh. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> But it's so true. And even with TNG, they were still on a tight budget. That's why, like, in, in Encounter at Farpoint, the USS Hood is just the Excelsior model that they used in the movies. And then, you know, like, seven years yeah. later, each admiral still using the uh, Excelsior-class ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? Um, and that, you know, so they've always kind of ran on a tight budget. You know, it was always uh, use the cheapest stuff you can find and be creative and it's one of those things where, you know, like Deadpool, the movie Deadpool is a really good example where if you have to be creative, sometimes you're better because of it. Yeah. Right, exactly. You know, so I think there is a risk here that this being the, you know, $8 million an episode, right? So we're talking, what is that, like $120 million or something along those lines for a season is a lot of money. That's a medium-sized movie right there these days. For yeah. a full Hollywood movie, that's a lot of money. Well, for perspective, uh, Deadpool got, I think it was 65 or $69 million. So there's there's a good comparison right there. Yeah, <laughs> District 9 was what, like $20 million or $25 million or something way back way back in the day in 2008? So, yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. Sometimes you, when the more creative you get, sometimes the better it is. Well, and that's, that's the big thing with all the like CW comic book shows is they they have that camp factor where everything is clearly like, the action happens off camera or things are obfuscated by like a boulder or something because it's, it's all cheap. They're all there. They do not have $8 million budgets. Yeah. I mean, that's the number one reason that's, you know, Supergirl was moved from CBS to the CW uh, was because of the expense. Um, And so if we can't keep the subscribers up on, on this, I mean, this is a very expensive TV show. Um, Other than that, how do you guys feel? Because this this is something that, that personally bothers bothers me at the moment. How do you feel that the title of the show seems to be in direct contrast with the story of the show? Well, again, I think that remains to be seen because we haven't seen the pilot of the show yet. Like, if there's some aspect of Discovery once she get gets on Discovery that kind of harkens back to the architecture of the ship or something that would. Uh, kind of justify those like ancient diagrams that are in the opening credits. Um, I don't know. I just feel like it's too early to really judge that because we haven't seen the show yet. What, what kind of surprised me the most was in the show and then the after track, they're talking about, you know, the chronicling the 15 episodes of, you know, the, the Klingon war. I'm like, so this is an actual war. You know, I, when the episode ended, I kind of thought it was just going to be one of those border skirmishes that happens in Star Trek all the time. I mean, if you watch Next Generation, you know, the Romulans and Federation fought how many times? You know, Tomalak versus Picard, they fought, what, 10 or 12 times. It never led to an all-out war. And I kind of thought they were going to do that. And then after Trek, they're going to talk, oh, yeah, no, we're going to be evaluating and looking at the Klingon Empire as they formed during this war. And I'm like, oh, so this is this is an actual war. <laughs> let's see. Let's see where they go with this. And that, that's kind of where, where I'm coming from is that I, I have no problem with them doing the Klingon War. Uh, we can uh, talk about how that was impacted by fan films at another time if we want to. But um, my, my real issue is you call the show Discovery, but it's about a war. And I feel like the the other shows, for the most part, did a pretty good job of naming themselves after the idea, right? Deep Space Nine was about a space station at the edge of Federation space. And Voyager was about a 
you know, a epically long journey that this ship was going to have to go on a voyage for. Um, you know, and, and Enterprise, of course, was about the beginnings of an Enterprise starship. But Discovery is about a war. So why is it called Discovery? Why did they come up with that name? That's, that's kind of where I'm a little confused. And I'm probably unique in the fact that I preferred the model of the Shenzhou over the uh, Discovery that we saw. Oh, I don't think that makes you unique. I think that's most people. I, the, the Shenzhou, it gave me just... I can't. I don't know how to describe it. It gave me feelings of that's just... That ship looks like Star Trek. And the Discovery does too in its own way. But the Shenzhou especially. I'm yeah. like, that is dead. That is an absolutely a Star... That is a Starfleet vessel thrown through. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it looks like the other ships that came to help during the battle of the binary stars, right? They all look like ships that we've seen before. Um, but discovery of course is a, is a huge departure. And I know that it's based off of Ralph McQuarrie's original design for the motion picture. I, I get that. Um, but do you think they're going to be able to explain why it's drastically different than their own ships? I mean, I, Again, I think that's that's going to be what the the actual plot of the series is going to be about. Is the discovery is going to have some special quality that will that will make it some you know vanguard against the the ravages of the Klingon War. I, I think it's not going to be a standard Starfleet vessel. I think it's going to be special. And, and that's kind of what they did with Voyager in a few episodes now and then. They you know Janeway would talk about how. Oh, you know, our, our biogenic power packs were designed for this, and the nacelles do this, you know, to permit atmospheric flight, which is unique among a Starfleet uh, a Starfleet ship. We can land on a planet. So maybe, yeah, maybe Jeremy's right. Maybe they will do something along those lines with Discovery. Yeah, well, I, I certainly hope so. I'm looking forward to that, uh, to be sure. Um, are there any other thoughts or topics about the premiere that you guys would like to discuss? I am obsessed with that robot-headed character. <laughs> They they only flashed him on screen for like four or five different seconds, like throughout the first couple episodes. But it was it was like an android. It was it was like the head was a robot. I have to know more about what that was. It, and I saw some images on Twitter that somebody was tweeting that they think it was actually like a female android. Right. And I'm like Data's long lost sister. Yeah. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the battle scene. I have to admit, I thought they did a, a good job with that. And and I know every a lot of people complained in the in the the Kelvin timeline about how the Enterprise's phasers are like pulse cannons now. It's two Star Wars. Yeah. But if you watch the original Star the original Star Trek, they were all kind of like that anyways when they could show a phaser on screen. Uh-huh. It really wasn't until Next Generation when they just came up with a solid beam. And then you had the Defiant, which was you know a Star Wars ship in Star Trek. But it was still cool. They're cool ships that look like Star Trek. And I love the battle scene. I love the way the ships moved and... Yeah, like you said, I, I like that they look like Starfleet ships. That was just, that was, I, enjoy, I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, um, I, I found both of those things interesting. I thought the android was, it was kind of funny when they went to Red Alert that it actually flashed on a screen on the head of the android, the robot. Right. Uh, that was kind of funny. Um, I, I liked most of the battle. I thought that the, the special effects were really good for that. Um, the phaser thing never really bothered me because, yeah, you're, you're totally right, Greg. In the original series, they were more like, bolts, you know, and not long streams like in TNG. Um, I, the only part that bothered me in the battle is uh, when the Europa is destroyed by the Klingon ship that's like ramming it while it's cloaked, I'm unclear on where that ship came from because it's supposed to be uh, Tacova's ship, but his ship's the one with the long neck. So I was a little confused by that, but that might just be nitpicking. Or were those not the same ship? It certainly didn't look like the same ship. It almost looked like it had like a ram prow hmm. on it. <laughs> it exactly. Like it was designed yeah. just to ram ships, which in space, okay, but I, <laughs> it, it's, it's not nitpicky to me because at the same time, I, I might have been screaming at the screen. I'm like, reverse. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you are Starfleet. You are great engineers. If something feels like it's hitting your ship's shields and you don't know where it is, like Kirk and... Undiscovered Country, when the bird of prey is firing on the Enterprise, and he's like, all right, back off, back off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and Chang's like, what is she doing? You know, Do they see us somehow? Yeah, and that was, that was such a big moment in even Nemesis when ramming was like such a last-ditch option and so destructive for both vessels. And it was just like the only reason that worked at all was because everything was at a dead standstill. 
It's like if you could move and at all, then you should be able to at least you know turn off your inertial dampeners and just take the hit and bounce away. Well, and plus the Europa, the Europa uh, self destructed. So if it you know if it was the Klingon leadership, I don't know. That's I got kind of the same questions as both of you guys. I'm like, was was it the Kofa's ship or was it something different? It must have been something different because it didn't look like his. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> And if that's the case, are there multiple ships in the Klingon fleet that have cloaking technology? Yeah, so this is something that I don't remember. Um, When do the Klingons get cloaks? Because I I thought they already had them by this time, but the show seemed to say otherwise, so maybe I'm misremembering. I thought it was in the original series, because there's that episode where the, uh, the, the Enterprise encounters what they think are Klingon ships, but they're crewed by Romulans, and it's because the Romulans traded cloaking to the Klingons for Klingon warship designs. Another budget-saving technique, by the way. <laughs> yeah, another budget-saving technique. And, you know, the historical timeline or whatever, that's like, what, 2260-something. So, yeah, that's like, what, 80 or 90 years ahead of this? No, no, it's, it's only like 10 or 12. Oh, that's right. 10, it's only like 10 or 12 years. I, I, yeah. I don't know why I was thinking of Enterprise again. Um, so maybe maybe they're retconning that a little bit, which wouldn't be a huge retcon if it's only 10 or 12 years. But then it was like on the After Trek comment they're talking about. Somebody's like, well, we get to see the Romulans. And the one leader writer threw up his arms. He's like, don't mention that word. Because every time we bring up the word Romulans, my half my writers go start screaming and half my writers sigh. <laughs> well, but... Yeah, they're not allowed to even talk about Romulans in the writer's room. Did, did the Klingon ships in Enterprise not have cloaks? I don't think they did. Okay. Mm. So I'm just... I gotta go back and yeah. reinvestigate. Maybe I'm just remembering it wrong. And just in my head, Klingons just have had the cloak the whole time. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the Romulan thing is tough, right? Because they're, they're a major, you know, kind of staple of the Trek universe, but we're not supposed to have been talking to them, so. <laughs> well, and that's what I always love about Next Generation is, remember, all of, us, the, all of us were thinking, you know, they kept teasing Romulans for seven years, right? And we're all like, oh, man, eventually they're going to fight, and they never do. Never. <laughs> they barely fight in the movie, you know, like, <laughs> in Nemesis. Yeah, they fight in the movie. You know? Yeah, well, those are Remans. That's true. true. <laughs> those were Remans. Well, okay, Romulans actually helped the Enterprise. And, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then the, the Romulans helped the Federation and the Klingons in the Dominion Wars. So I'm like, man, we'll never get to see a Romulan Kling or human fight aside from yeah. you know, uh, Nero's ship in Star Trek 2009. But even he said, we stand apart from the Romulan right. Empire. Weird. <laughs> He also said that wasn't even a military ship, that was, a mining, that was like a mining vessel. We should build our mining vessels like that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that was... yeah. uh, that's, that's another thing I wanted to talk to you guys about from the first episode was that the initial conflict where Michael spacewalks to the ship, um, like what was the, what was his point of sitting there? Like that, that ancient ship, didn't look like the the signal flare ship. It was like retracted. Did I miss something? I thought it was supposed to be the the torch ship. Um, I'm not saying that they did that well, but I just assumed. Well, it almost feels like scenes were cut. Yeah, because I thought it was just a torch. But then, like you said, Jeremy, with the the Klingon just standing there, I'm like, was he just standing on there forever? Right. With, exactly. With, I mean. Was he there because the radiation? Does it not impact Klingons like it does humans? Was he inside the torch? Yeah, so like, much. I wonder. Maybe there was a. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say. So much of the the whole like first act of the first episode seems so muddled because like just thinking back, I don't know why they went there. I don't know why they wouldn't use a runabout instead of an Evo suit. I don't know. It just everything seemed. It was it was so hard to pin down the the motivations and like the, the direct need for why they did those things. I got to go back and watch. Cause I think they did that famous star Trek hand wave where oh, our, our sensors can't penetrate the, uh, the magnetic, you know, field of the moon. And then you're like, wait a second, the moon. <laughs> but yeah. I, I think they said something where like, they didn't have any shuttle pods that could navigate the asteroid field. Yeah. I think there and... was a throwaway line like that, <laughs> but it, I don't think it, I think it was like the science officer that said it. <laughs> and, that, and it was just really quick. Yeah. Also, the the runabouts are called worker bees. Well, because it's not it's not really a runabout, right? Like those were new for Deep Space Nine, so it's just like a little pod. Oh, that's an established thing. I've never seen a worker bee. They're a Star Trek thing, but from my memory of, of old school Star Trek, is they were like a uh, 
like a Starbase thing. Right. Because they were used to like do repairs and ferry cargo back and forth. Well, I figured that the excuse was they had one with them because they were going to repair the relay. Oh, that's a good point. And maybe that's what the thing they showed earlier that was doing something on the on the relay. Yeah. So did we did we ever definitively figure out what happened to the relay? Was it the Klingons? I think we're supposed to assume that it was, but they didn't outright say it. <laughs> okay. yeah, I think that was one of his vague motivations was he shot the relay to draw Federation forces so that he could draw uh, Klingon forces so that they could have that that tense moment. Oh, you're right. So, speaking of the torch, does it bother you guys at all that somehow this light was able to travel to basically both at all the ends of the alpha and beta quadrants for everybody to see instantly. Well, and that sound wave that traveled through the, the ship and everything. It's like oh, more than right. just light. It was sound. Yeah. Cause the, it almost, uh, kind of incapacitated the crew of the Shenzo, but it's, it's like, instead of the beacon of Minas Tirith now, it's like, you have the beacon of Kronos. <laughs> you know, it just somehow goes across you you would like if it goes that far and, and Derek you just mentioned it if it goes that far enough into the Alpha and Beta quadrant is like the president of the Federation on Earth just getting hit with this light beam and sound beam going wait a second what just <laughs> you know was there fifty other Federation ships because we saw like twenty of them arrive but how many were hit it well, couldn't have just been the Klingons but that aside for a minute I mean these planets are you know in some cases hundreds of light years away. Um, how is the light even visible yet? It's transwarp beacon. (laughs) (laughs) That's in this, in this timeline, that's what brought the Borg back to the prime timeline. Oh no. That that Klingon torch beam is traveling for 50 years and the Borg are like, what are this? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think that's, that's part of another thing that kind of rubs me the wrong way about this show is that they don't science stuff out the way they've done in other ones where they'll have like, you know, the, the TMG briefing room where they'll talk about what's actually happening so that you can kind of keep up with the, the technological aspect of it. Like we are introduced to these Klingons that are even a more savage, more like Kronos looks like it's all rocks, like very few structures yet somehow this kid was able to rebuild his father's ancient ship with cloaking technology and crazy, you know, trans light light apertures and whatnot. It's like, where are the, where are the Klingon scientists? Who's, who's figuring this stuff out? And, and that kind of goes back to our discussion earlier is, yeah, we're missing that command room briefing that happened on Gen- Next Generation and Voyager, all this, all the series, because the bulk of this crew isn't transferring over to Discovery. So... They're not going to take five minutes to do that if not everybody's going to be on the Discovery now moving forward. I don't know if all of them are right. or if only some of them are. I know Doug Jones is going over, I think. Well, and it looks uh, like the uh, the woman uh, Helms officer uh, yeah. is going to be on the Discovery as well. And Dr. Nambu, uh, Malik Pinchala, oh. the guy from uh, 30 Rock. Right, right. And, and that's one thing about this show that maybe is my fault. It's my bad. But it was hard for me to figure out each character's name early on because mm-hmm. they I just didn't have a lot of attributes to each person to figure out. So you know, aside from you know Michael Burnham's care or yeah the character Michael Burnham and you know Michelle Yao, Captain Giorgio, but a lot of the other characters I'm like man I can't remember your name just because there weren't a lot of attributes that stood out aside from there's the alien science officer to me and that's that's bad that's on me. But, well, it's different than previous Trek, though. I mean, the other shows had their introductory episode, right, where the crew kind of gets together and you learn who everybody is and what their job is. And maybe that's outdated storytelling, um, but it does this this new way of storytelling doesn't feel very Trek. Yeah, it almost is is kind of paced and structured like a Netflix bingey show. Like everything would be dumped at the same time, and you just watch it as like a piecemeal huge movie. Really, the only characters in these two episodes that they introduced that are actual characters that are going to live through the whole show are Saru and Michael. I mean, everybody else was just kind of buzzed right past the camera. That was the crazy thing about that after track. They, they showed like, oh, and here's the whole crew, and it was four people that we haven't been introduced to yet. <laughs> okay, well, great. Who are you people? 
Well, I guess we'll just have to see on Sunday for episode three uh, what what's going on there. Um, so we're we're kind of at our mark here. Uh, any closing thoughts on Discovery? Because I do I do have one final question before we sign off. So okay, so here I'm just going to run through my notes of of things that I wanted to bring up. Uh, the hollow projection uh, communication as opposed to view screens is a big big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a ensign on, on deck that was named Wheaton, oh. which, uh, I think might've been some fan service. That's cute. I missed that. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but, when they went on the away mission to board the, uh, Klingon ship, they were wearing armor, which I've never seen in Star Trek. Like usually it's, you know, you just assume you're going to get hit, but they actually had like what looked like a Kevlar vest. Mm-hmm. And Michael was conveniently knocked unconscious for two different dream sequences, which seemed excessive. Just <laughs> like kept getting bonked on the head by coconuts so that we could see her flashbacks. That's fair. Right. Yeah. I think that's it. Greg, how about you? It it did leave me with wanting to know more and see more about the show. And the reason I say that is there have been a lot of shows in the past where people are like, Oh Greg, you need to watch it, you're gonna love, whether it's you know, Walking Dead or Breaking Bad or shows like that that I just couldn't get into. And this show, I do want to see more because, you know, I like, you know, Michael Burnham as as an act as as her character. I want to see what she can do. They've never done something like this before. I mean, she was court martialed, like, and not like Admiral Kirk court martialed, where you're demoted to captain. But by the way, here's a ship. <laughs> go, <laughs> go be Captain Kirk. It's you're demoted and stripped of rank, and oh by the way, you're you're actually being punished. And yeah, we see her on the Discovery in the trailer, so we'll see what she does, but. I, I have a lot of hope for this, and I I want there to be more Star Trek on TV, whether it's online or on regular CBS. Or it, I want to see more, and that's the best compliment I can give it. Fair enough. Yeah. So uh, I feel like I probably know this answer for you guys, given our earlier discussion, but uh, who is your number one captain? Who would you want to serve under? Hmm. I mean, Picard... Is just, I, I, you know, he he has my heart, my heart and soul goes to Jean Luc. Um, I would I would actually say Picard because I think it's the captain that I would have the least chance of dying under. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, you know this sounds horrible, but you know Captain Cisco and you know and Janeway they, I mean every every series they saw some stuff, but it seems like Cisco and Janeway I'm like holy cow your casualty lists are are just huge. But Picard, yeah. I always loved the thing about Picard was the philosophy as the philosophy aspect to him, excuse me, and just the way he carried himself and the speeches he would give and the social stuff he would bring up and I don't know, he was just he was my captain. I grew up with him and like Jeremy, he still he has my heart. Yeah, I think my big thing with Picard was that like you could see in those episodes where he got to be an archaeologist that like that's his dream, like his his real desires were to be that like xenobiologist like universe trotting archaeologist but being the captain feels like it was his service like it's something that he feels a duty to do and like i I would rather serve under someone who like feels not like it's fun to be a captain but it's like his mission i, I will say after one like basically one and a half episodes or two episodes however you want to describe it Michelle Yao rapidly moved up my list, even though she's not there for long term. And it was all for yeah. it was all for one scene. You know, after Burnham knocks her out or attempts to knock her out, and she wakes up and arrests her. There are so many TV shows that you know Captain Georgia would have put the phaser down and said, "You know what? We've been friends for seven years. It was just a bad moment." And she was the Starfleet captain that said, "What you did was wrong, and we are in a perilous situation, and you took advantage of our friendship." So I'm confining you to the brig. I'm like, that's that's a captain. Like that was a very simple two or three minute scene, but it was so well done. It made me really respect her character, and I'm sad that she's not going to be there more often. Yeah, um, I actually was going to say something very similar about uh, Captain Giorgio. Uh, with just two episodes, it's hard to say, but I feel like I would have been happy serving uh, under her command. Um, I, I think I, I strive to be Picard but I would prefer to serve under Janeway uh, just because, you know, Picard, uh, he had the flagship, 
You know, he had the best of the best with the best resources. Uh, but Janeway didn't. She had a small science vessel and a small half crew to, to get the job done. And I, I think I'd rather serve under her, but I want to be Picard, if that makes sense. <laughs> so nobody wants to serve under Cisco, you know, in the Dominion War? I mean, come on. <laughs> Dude, the dude, like, nuked the atmosphere of a planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to play politic baseball every weekend. There you go. Yeah, yeah, you could. That's good. At least Picard wants to do, like, murder mysteries and stuff. Yes, that would be fun. Yeah, you could do mur- murder mysteries with him, Sherlock Holmes with Data and Jordy. It's a good time. Yes. All right. This guy just wants to play baseball. <laughs> Well, I think that's going to wrap up the first episode of Red Shirts and Runabouts. Uh, We are part of the Heroes Podcast Network. You can find us and our other shows at heroespodcasts.com and at Heroes Podcasts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. Um, We will be on iTunes as well as Blog Talk Radio, and eventually we will be on Google Play as well, but there's a bit of a delay on that. If people wanted to reach out and find you guys individually to talk Trek, are you available? And if so, where? Uh, I am at Zen, Z-E-N, Munken, M-O-N-K-E-N, at Gmail, or at, well, that's my email address, at uh, Twitter. On Twitter. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, if people are looking for an email, it's just uh, GM Bosco with a K, B-O-S-K-O-1 at yahoo.com and i'm on twitter at the underscore bittersteel which is a uh, it's a little game of thrones reference so just the underscore bittersteel nice and i am at the star trek dude on twitter and facebook and if you'd like to contact the three of us directly you can go to heroespodcast.com go to the about contact page and you can send us a message that way or email us contact at heroespodcast.com Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We look forward to more episodes, and we will catch you next week. Live long and prosper. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VGW group void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus